You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. If you have your bulletin or your Bible today, we're going to look at Romans chapter 5 this morning. Uh, Paul's words to the Romans. A um, couple things to, to note. This is not part of the sermon, but, you know, in Psalm chapter 8, I was really happy that we got a little shout out to the Avengers. Uh, always a nice little uh, bonus in church for those who like the Avengers. Um, and then Romans chapter 5. So we're going to pick up today in Romans 5. The lectionary drops us right in the middle of Romans. And so I think it's important, uh, if you've ever heard me teach or preach, it's important to get our context so we know what in the world we're looking at in Romans chapter 5. It, it packs a lot in there. But I think it packs even more when we know what Paul has said before Romans chapter 5. And so I just want to briefly give us a real quick context so that we can understand Romans 5 a little bit better. Chapter 1 of Romans, uh, you get uh, the proclamation of the power of the gospel and the call to live a righteous life. Uh, Romans chapter 1, the most popular verse that you probably know, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek First, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so we've got this proclamation of the gospel and the call to righteousness in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, Paul goes in and he says, God's righteous judgment on the unrighteous people. So if you're not in Christ and you're unrighteous and apart from the Lord, then there is a judgment that happens from the Lord. And Paul is saying, it's a real thing, it happens, it will happen and so he is making a plea to those who would read to come into faith in Jesus so that they might be righteous, so that God might make them righteous. In chapter 3, he makes that plea really strongly. He says the truth that no one is righteous, none of us is righteous, but God has given us a way to obtain righteousness by the blood of Jesus Christ. Romans 3.23, another popular verse, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. I love that word, by the way. That's one of my favorite words in all the Bible. Propitiation, you can throw that out at lunchtime today just to see if you can surprise somebody. And be to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness. God's righteousness is made our righteousness because we're unrighteous. So that's where Paul goes. And then in chapter 4, this is a popular chapter where the great reformers some 500 years plus ago came up with the five solas of theology. If you remember the five sola, the sola fida, by faith alone, sola scriptura, by scripture alone, sola Christus, through Christ alone, sola gratia, by grace alone, sola de gloria, by glory to God alone. And so in chapter four, Paul unpacks faith in Jesus and his perfect work on the cross for our sake. And then we pick up in chapter 5. See, chapter 5 means a lot more when we know that, right? So chapter 5 now is Paul speaking to those who are in faith. Those who have been redeemed from unrighteousness to righteousness through Jesus Christ. There's a great difference. I think Paul would say this. There's a great difference between knowing something in your head and feeling something in your heart and understanding it. The passage in Romans would have us experience the love of God through knowing that we are justified by faith. And because of faith, we experience grace, and by grace, we have hope 
in God's glory. Paul is not, however, in chapter 5, trying to just make a headstrong argument. He truly wants the church to know the love that Christ, God in flesh, had for us even when we didn't love him. Um, I know that I'm married to my wife, Allison. There's a couple ways that I know this. I could give you four. There's probably many more. But I can make an argument and a justification that I'm married to her. One, I know the date in which we were married. It happened. I have proof. There are boatloads of pictures that took place in the preparation, in the ceremony, in the reception. Even at the honeymoon, there are pictures that we can look back on and say, we got married. Secondly, I have a marriage certificate that states on it, August 9th, 2003. I can go back and look at that anytime I want to and prove that we're married. Thirdly, she has a driver's license and a social security card stating that we share the same last name that she didn't have before we got married. So therefore, is proof. And then fourthly, I have, do, I have to do a little something we all love called taxes in April, right? And I, I file married filing jointly. And the IRS responds and says, that's right. So there's proof that we're married. All those things prove, yes, that we are married. But I don't go around looking at those things to prove that we're married. No, I live in the context of the marriage. I know we're married because we experience it daily. Good, the bad, the ugly, it's all there. We experience that marriage. That's the love that God wants you to experience from him this morning. Not just a knowledge, not just a knowing of it, but an experience of knowing it. An experience of feeling it. And he, I would say he probably multiplies that even a thousand times what uh, knowing that you're married would look like. Paul's goal in Romans 5 is not mere head knowledge of God's love, but a heart knowledge of God's love for us. Someone once told me this statement, which I kind of chuckled at. It says, I know God loves me. He's supposed to do that because he's God. But I also know that God likes me, and that makes his love for me even more powerful. God has to love me, right? God is love, but he also likes me, and that makes his love even more powerful. You can know in your head and make an argument for God's love, but I want to ask you the question this morning, have you experienced it the way Paul is presenting it here in Romans chapter 5? We can know it by uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, and therefore we could deduce that I'm part of the world, and therefore God loves me, and that's one way we can prove that God loves us. But Paul wants us to know the love, of God, the love that God has for us, not only in head, but in heart. And so how do we do that? Well, first of all, he says, you're justified. You're justified through faith. If you define the word justified, to prove or to show to be just. Now, that's not super helpful for me. But if you biblically uh, define what justification it is to declare righteous before a holy God. And so therefore, through faith, we have been justified to God. We are, we've been told to God through the, the work of Jesus Christ that we are righteous before him because of the work of Jesus. Because of the bloodshed of Jesus on the cross. So Paul is being very clear here that our righteousness has been declared to a holy God through faith. You can take a deep breath this morning. You've been justified through faith in Jesus. No matter how good or how bad your thought, words, and deeds are, the work of Jesus is still complete. 
It is the bloodshed Savior on the old rugged cross that has redeemed you and me by his actions. Paul wants you to know that and experience that. And what happens when we experience the justification of Christ? Well, he mentions a few things. One, he says, peace. Peace. Now, when you hear peace today, maybe you're like me. I hear people talk about peace all the time. You know, if you get the interviews on the Miss America contest or whatever, they, what do you want? Well, I want world peace, right? You hear that all the time. We want world peace. And it would be great to have world peace. But that's, I don't think that's what Paul's speaking of here. He's not talking about world peace, no wars. He's actually talking about a peace that passes all understanding, a peace in our hearts, knowing that we do not have to face the wrath of God because we've been justified. There's a peace that comes in the assurance of faith in Jesus. This isn't a figment of our imagination. It is the core belief of who Jesus is that gives us this peace. And if you've ever been around someone who's dying, you know that there is a massive difference in those whose hope resides in the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and King versus those who have yet to know him and they struggle with what comes next to comprehend the life after death. It's a big difference when we have hope when we've been justified, when there's a peace within us. And through that peace then, Paul then goes on, he wants us to also know that with faith comes grace. Grace. Grace in which we stand, he says in Romans 5. I don't know about you, but I think about when I think about standing in grace, I think about the ocean. You know, if you go out to the ocean and you begin to tread out into the water and if you go a little bit further, a little bit further, and finally you can lift your feet up and you begin to float in the waves going in and out and the warmth of the water, it just floods over you. And if you look around, all you see is water around you. Imagine that being the grace of God. That's what it's like being in the grace of God, that we can wade out and when we get there, we can find peace and comfort and hope knowing that the grace of God is covering us, that we can literally float in his grace each day. If our faith is in Christ, it uncorks the endless supply of grace that we can stand in. Now that alone is worth the weight of gold in Romans chapter 5, but Paul goes on. Faith in Christ also gives us a hope of the glory of God. That the glory will be manifested in a culture that seems far away from God. Hope that when peace seems hard to grasp and grace seems difficult to stand in, that the glory of God is the end result. It's not just us getting to see the glory of God, but it is us manifesting the glory of God. Our hope rests that we, like Moses, who came down from the mountain when meeting with God, he radiated God's glory, that we will be like Christ in his glory when we find ourselves in his presence. Several translations put it like this. We boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. That also, the other word that's used there is we rejoice in the hope of sharing the glory of God. Now, very rarely in Scripture, do we, are we told to boast? In fact, boasting is called out in Scripture most of the time. Don't boast in yourself. Those who begin to boast in themselves fall. Those kings in the Old Testament that, that thought they were, the, they were the stuff, they fell every time. But Paul here says there's a reason for boasting. There's something that we can boast in 
Boasting is not an attractive characteristic when done in ourselves. And if you ever know someone who's uh, proud of themselves, you know what I'm talking about. They're not the kind of people you really want to hang around, right? My grandmother used to say of those who would be boasting in themselves, she said they could use a piece of humble pie. How true is that? So when Scripture speaks of boasting, some 58 times, by the way, in Scripture, it's not a thing that is regarded as good, except for when Paul says, we boast in the hope of glory. We boast not in ourselves. We boast in Christ, in Christ's work in us, that God might use our weakness to make himself known and glorified. He says it this way, we boast in the hope of the glory of God and we boast in our suffering. Now think about that for a minute. We boast in our hardship. We rejoice. You can use that word again. Rejoice in our hardships. How many of you wake up in the morning when hardship comes and say, woohoo, I'm really glad this is happening to me today? Not very many of us. If we're being honest, none of us, right? That's not a natural response. But what Paul says here is that that Boasting and suffering, what does it produce? It produces endurance. So that in our suffering, when we rejoice, Christ is producing endurance. And through endurance, he produces character. And through character, he produces hope. I want to ask you a hard question this morning. Paul's actually advocating that we rejoice in our sufferings. When's the last time we ask for suffering? Again, I don't think we're, that's not the first thing I'm praying for in the morning. I don't think it would attract too many if we put that on the sign out front and said, hey, come to the Advent so you can suffer, maybe even die. I don't, I don't think too many people be flooding through the doors when we say that. However, what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 5 is that when suffering comes, that we might rejoice because we have a hope in the gospel. We have a hope in who Jesus is. And I'm not advocating that we pray for something disastrous to happen. I'm not advocating that we pray for a loss of a job or, or cancer or we lose our home or our families. But I am advocating that we begin to think about the kingdom of God the way Jesus and the way Paul thought about the kingdom of God. That we are aliens in a foreign land. This is not our home and that when suffering and pain comes we can trust in the Lord that there is endurance and character and hope that is being produced. And that we find ourselves in those moments, deepening our worship of the Lord. Not shaking our fist at God, but opening our hands and rejoicing, saying, I don't know what you're doing, God, but I'm going to trust you in all things. So I leave you this this morning, two questions today that I think we have to answer in Romans chapter 5 that you can take away and maybe talk at lunch or at dinner tonight about, that is this, what needs to change in your life today as a result of what, God, of what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 5? What needs to change for you to reflect the glory of God the way he's speaking this morning? And then secondly, who needs to hear the message of hope today? And will you share it? Who needs to hear the hope of the gospel? That in their suffering, God's grace is sufficient. Let us pray. God, we know your love does not disappoint. 
We know that your Holy Spirit fills us and reminds us of the hope of the gospel, and we rejoice in that. Lord, today I pray for that person who sits here, and they are in a suffering moment. They're in a hardship. And maybe they're asked the question, why? Lord, would they turn their eyes to you? And God, would you give them a hope that only comes through the redemptive work of Jesus? And for the rest of us, maybe, who are not in the midst of suffering currently, but we will be, there will be times in life when it feels like it's very difficult and hard to wade in your grace. Lord, would you strengthen us today? And God, would you give us a heart for those around us that we might reflect the kingdom of God in the way that Jesus and Paul and the disciples all reflected that. Thank you, Lord, for this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. 